So if it works to <clears throat> show your image, that would be great. It's nice to be able to see people as I'm uh, talking. So if that works for you, that's appreciated from, from this end. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm looking forward to really sharing some of my own experiences and perspectives related to this great, wonderful teacher named uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. And what I'd like to do is to weave together some of my own stories of experiences um, being with Thich Nhat Hanh, with some of his life story, with um, going into some of his teachings. And at the end of the, uh, my own sharing, I want to, share, I want to have a, a video of some of Thich Nhat Hanh's teaching. Along the way, in talking about his life, I'll share a number of images from his life, starting when he's about 16 years old, going all the way to when he's 92. He died again 10 days ago at age, at age 95. So let's first, Carlita, show that image again of Thich Nhat Hanh. Just one moment. Let me pull that back up. And I think this image is from um, about 2009 that, that we saw earlier. And so he's, um, I guess at that point, uh, in his early 80s. So he's... Um, Nikki, at this moment, is leading walking meditation. And we'll see him in, in earlier versions, earlier times in his life. So we can let go of that image now. I'll start with my own first meeting of Thich Nhat Hanh um, in person. I met him for the first time in 1987. I went to a retreat that he was leading at the Insight Meditation Society in um, Barrie, Massachusetts. I had been going to retreats at uh, IMS for about 10 years and was uh, very, very familiar with the style of retreat they did there, which was similar to Spirit Rock where people would be in silence for up to a few months, typically might be at that time could be a week or 10 days, would do uh, typically sitting and walking meditation all day long in silence. The sittings would be up to 45 minutes or an hour or so. Um, uh, they would be held in silence. And so with this retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh, the, the longest sitting was 20 minutes. And uh, we did not keep silence. It would have been very hard because there were about 20 kids who were part of the retreat who were um, walking around in the hall and so forth. And um, I remember uh, some of the staff and old timers at uh, the retreat center wondering what kind of retreat this was and seemed to seeming to imply that it was spiritually maybe lightweight. Right? That it was, uh, you know, and uh, Thich Nhat Hanh would uh, uh, bring the children into the meditation hall a lot. He would typically start his talks and he would give uh, two two-hour talks a day. Right? We'd often go walking on the country road near IMS, you know, in groups, you know, with uh, children, typically uh, near the beginning. And so, again, for some of the people who had done retreats, it didn't seem like so much was happening. It was sort of, you know, maybe pleasant in certain ways. But I experienced it, the retreat, as about learning something very, very profound. And I remembered um, 
talking with people after the retreat and saying it wasn't about concentration or necessarily having my mind be very, very still. But I learned something very profound about interconnection and noticing the interconnection of all things and all people moment to moment for days on end, for several days on end, and living in that understanding of interdependence. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, he was often known, as many of you know, as Thai, which is Vietnamese for teacher. Uh, he, he called this quality of understanding an understanding of interbeing. And so I would, uh, I was just very deeply affected by that sense of interbeing, which really entered really strongly into my awareness. Some of the ways that this occurred were from his teaching. He would um, often start a talk, again, with uh, you know 20 or so children being up front, and he would hold up an orange, and he would say, do you see this orange? And they would say, yes. Yeah, and he, he would ask, can you see the clouds where the, where the oranges were growing? And they would say, yes. Can you see the rain coming down from the clouds in the orange? Yes. <laughs> can you see the soil where the oranges were growing? Yes. And they would, they would just really get into it, right? And there he, was, he was teaching this for the children. Of course, he was also very much teaching for the adults. He was teaching about this interconnection and teaching us to actually see that interconnection moment by moment. You know, and, and he would let us uh, really explore that teaching. This exists because of that. And we can know that philosophically, but he was teaching that as a way of perceiving moment by moment. It was, again, he called this learning more about interbeing. And he has a whole book that I brought out. He has a whole book that he published on that theme, a book called Inter Interbeing. One of his major teachings about really understanding interdependence. So, so he would bring that into you know, understanding how I am not fundamentally different from someone with very different views from me or from someone who does very unskillful things, even wrong. So he would bring this into social awareness, the sense of interbeing, understanding that uh, there is a deep connection and we often tend to see things as if we were separate. We like especially to see people with different views, different perspectives as different. And he was talking about the profound interconnection. And some of this was quite beautiful and pleasant, and some of it was not always so pleasant. Some of that growing sense of interbeing was at times painful. So for example, at the retreat, there were about half the people at the retreat were Vietnamese Americans. There were about 80 people at the retreat, about 40 were of v Vietnamese ancestry. And there were a lot of kids there. And again, this was 1987. So we were only 12 years removed from the end of the Viet so-called Vietnam War. And of course, in Vietnam, they call it the American War, right? And, and so seeing the kids and knowing some of the history, and we saw films you know, we saw at least one film on some of Thich Nhat Hanh's work in Vietnam, which had images of uh, B-52s dropping bombs, right? So there was that sense of, okay, there's interdependence in that way as well, you know? Who was responsible for the bombs falling, you know? Who, um, who, who, who had family members killed? These were all people who we were all spending time with, you know. And so this teaching of interbeing, it's the first teaching 
I want to, I, I really want to name as really, really crucial and a, a beautiful teaching, very relevant for, for now. I think the teachings of interbeing are connected with compassion, learning and compassion, learning empathy, learning to question our own self-righteousness at times or our own negative views of ourselves and really seeing that, um, seeing that deep sense of interconnection. Thich Nhat Hanh founded a group of people, you know, following his teachings when he was still in Vietnam, and he called it the Order of Interbeing. I'll come back to that. So I want, secondly, to explore a second set of teachings related to what he called engaged Buddhism. And here I'll also bring in um, some images which uh, give a sense of the, uh, the life of Thich Nhat Hanh. And I'll go to my screen share here. Okay, can everyone see this fine? Okay, great. So this is um, Thich Nhat Hanh at age 16 becoming a monk as a novice. It's 1942. Thich Nhat Hanh is born in 1926. So this is around 1942 in Hue in uh, central Vietnam. About nine years later, he's taking his full monastic precepts, 1951. And he's already starting to have his own very creative and innovative visions. In the next years, he is one of the first Vietnamese monks to go to uh, the university. He studies uh, secular subjects at the university in, in Saigon. And he is increasingly involved with the movement against the uh, French colonialism. Many of you remember the history. The French are engaged in struggles after World War II uh, with the Vietnamese who want to end the colonialism of the French. And the French are finally defeated in 1954. And many of the Buddhist communities are involved with the anti-colonial struggle. You know, I later um, became friends, good friends, and with um, a Dharma heir of Thich Nhat Hanh named uh, Thich Minh Duc. Some of you may know him if you were ever uh, studying Vietnamese history at San Jose Community College, where he taught for many, many years under his uh, non-monk name, which was uh, Tan Nguyen. So you would have known him as Professor Nguyen. <laughs> In any case, um, when I was uh, teaching uh, at uh, graduate school, uh, he became a student of mine. And we would joke when we would meet people, when we would say, he would say, this is my teacher. And I would say, this is my teacher. And we would sort of bow to each other. And he eventually did his PhD dissertation. I was his advisor. It was on a history of what was called engaged Buddhism in Vietnam. And he showed how Buddhism had actually always been involved with questions of what was right and, you know, what later became issues of justice and freedom in Vietnam. That had gone on for a thousand years. And, and Thich Minh Duc particularly focused on the next really important years, um, you know, leading up to the 1960s. So here is Thich Nhat Hanh in the 1960s teaching at a school. He founded an organization called the Buddhist Youth for Social Service. This is Thich Nhat Hanh teaching about the Bodhisattva of Compassion to school children. He was part of a group of people 
who started what came to be called the Engaged Buddhist Movement. He became a leader, very innovative. So this is him in 1966, when he had uh, worked to develop what was called Engaged Buddhism. This is Thich Nhat Hanh. When I was in Vietnam, so many of our villages were being bombed. Along with my monastic brothers and sisters, I had to decide what to do. Should we continue to practice in our monasteries or should we leave the meditation halls in order to help the people who were suffering under the bombs? After careful reflection, we decided to do both, to go out and help people and to do so in mindfulness. We called it engaged Buddhism. Mindfulness must be engaged. Once there is seeing, there must be acting. We must be aware of the real problems of the world. Then with mindfulness, we will know what to do and what not to do to be of help. And starting in those years, he's really dedicated himself to a vision of connecting inner work and mindfulness and inner practice with responding to issues in the world and giving you know, many elements of uh, uh, a way to do this, a perspective to do this. You know, his organization in Vietnam, one of them was called the School of Youth for Social Service and worked with 10,000 volunteers in Vietnam. The war was continuing, though, and in 1966, he left Vietnam and came to the United States to try to speak against the U.S. involvement with the war. He was invited, I believe, by, by U.S. organizations. He met a number of people who were in the peace movement. One of the main people he met was uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. And here's an image of him at a press conference with Dr. King. He had a profound influence on Dr. King and many of you know that Dr. King, on it was actually some months later, uh, in April of 1967, gave a very uh, powerful speech coming out. And what, in his language, he said, "Breaking the silence about Vietnam." And for that, he actually became very, very unpopular and was criticized deeply by mainstream media, by many people in the civil rights movement, and so forth. But he was, he said, very deeply affected by meeting Thich Nhat Hanh. And he later nominated Thich Nhat Hanh for the Nobel Peace Prize. This is, um, I want to read a little bit from the letter that Dr. King wrote about Thich Nhat Hanh in January 1967. This was actually several months before he came out publicly against the war. He said, I know Thich Nhat Hanh, and I'm privileged to call him my friend. Let me share with you some things I know about him. You will find in this single human being an awesome range of abilities and interests. He is a holy man, for he is humble and devout. He is a scholar of immense intellectual capacity. The author of 10 published volumes, he is also a poet of superb clarity and human compassion. His academic discipline is the philosophy of religion, of which he is professor at Van Han, the Buddhist university he helped found in Saigon. He directs the Institute for Social Studies at this university. This amazing man also is editor of Tian Mi, an influential Buddhist weekly publication. He is director of Youth for Social Service, which trains young people for the peaceable rehabilitation of their country. And he went on to recommend him for the Nobel Peace Prize and say that following Thich Nhat Hanh, offers a way out of what he called the madness of Vietnam. 
actually when Thich Nhat Hanh came to the United States, he did not know and he would not know that he would be forbidden to come back to Vietnam for the next 39 years. And so he was, he went into uh, exile. And he was here, he lived in the area of Paris. He was the head of the Buddhist uh, delegation to the peace talks. And, but he was unable to go back to Vietnam. And he lived there. And later he would um, found a community in the early 1980s in southern France at a place he called uh, Plum Village. But along the way, for about uh, five years, between 1975 and 19, I think 1980 or 82, he actually went into retreat. He could not go back to Vietnam. He had been helping the so-called boat people leaving Vietnam, helping them and uh, go to other countries like Thailand and Indonesia. And the governments of those countries forbade him from being in their countries. And at that time, he did not know what to do. He went back and he had a five-year period of retreat and study. And he, he, he did this in, some rural, in a rural area near Paris. And out of this period came much of the vision of his um, later years and a lot of the articulation of his, of his time. So I think I'll come back to the images in a moment. So I'll stop the screen share and come back. And we'll go back to some further images. But I just wanted to bring out another one of his fundamental teachings that's very much influenced me, which came out of the uh, earlier period of um, time when he was actually in Vietnam. One of the uh, groups which he founded, I mentioned, is called the Order of Interbeing. And it was uh, guided by 14 guidelines. And what Thich Nhat Hanh did that had a really big impact on me and on many people was he stressed the importance of the fundamental ethical precepts for practice. For many of us in uh, North America, Europe, and so forth, our sense of practice is really geared to be around meditation. It's not, for, not everyone has that approach, but it can be really restricted in that way. And Thich Nhat Hanh has been very influential in bringing mindfulness and meditation into daily life, into all sorts of activities, into eating, into walking, into speaking, into listening, and so forth. But he also really stressed the ethical guidelines. And he stressed these both on an interpersonal level and also on a social level. And this had a big impact for me as I was um, getting involved starting in the late 1980s with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And we were looking for ways to understand how Buddhist practice might be in terms of the teachings, not just our, you know, our way of expressing it, but actually could be understood as implying uh, the need for being involved in our communities, being involved socially. I think you can find that in Buddhist traditions. And Thich Nhat Hanh brought that out very, very strongly. He gave understandings of the ethical precepts, for example, in which it was very clear that it was not just about one's face-to-face -face behavior. If you, if you take a ethical precept not to kill, not to harm others, and you see harm being done in your community, Thich Nhat Hanh said it's your ethical duty, as it were, to respond. This is how Thich Nhat Hanh expressed it. Aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I vow to cultivate compassion 
and learn ways to protect the lives of people, animals, plants, and minerals. I am determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to condone any act of killing in the world, in my thinking, and in my way of life. That's a tall order, isn't it? What does that imply for our practice? I think it's very, very challenging. Again, a dominant way that, that uh, Buddhist practice has been interpreted has been to see it, it's about my own individual private meditation, right? And I want to develop, and, and this is beautiful, I want to develop more calm and peace. And that's certainly crucial. And sometimes developmentally, it's very important that it's the first phase of our practice. But Thich Nhat Hanh is saying, if we stay there, that's quite limited. There's both a limited understanding of interdependence and also very limited ethically. This is also from Thich Nhat Hanh. We cannot support any act of killing. No killing can be justified. But not to kill oneself or not to kill is not enough. We must also learn ways to prevent others from killing. We cannot say, I am not responsible. They did it. My hands are clean. If you were in Germany during the time of the Nazis, you could not say, they did it. If during the Gulf War, where he came later generalized for other wars, you did not say or doing anything to try to stop the killing, you were not practicing this precept. Well, that's challenging, isn't it? What would it be like to really take that seriously and to see that? And he went on to do something very, very similar with the other ethical precepts. You know, this is from the precepts which, which he had in Vietnam in 1966. Possess nothing that should belong to others. Prevent others from enriching themselves from human suffering or the suffering of other beings. So it's again giving a very powerful social reading of the ethical precept about not taking that which is not given, not stealing. Later he says, do not accumulate wealth while millions are hungry. Live simply and share time, energy, and material resources with those who are in need. Another one of the guidelines for the order that he founded in 1966, do not avoid contact with suffering or close your eyes before suffering. Do not lose awareness of the existence of suffering in the life of the world. Find ways to be with those who are suffering by all means, including personal contact and visits and images. By such means, awaken yourself and others to the reality of suffering in the world. So what would it be like for, for us to take the ethical guidelines interpreted in this way as a major part of our practice? Maybe some of us are already doing that, but what would that mean? You know, how would we, how would we do that? You know, when I was uh, involved with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, we were trying to explore that. You know, we did, we, we developed a number of programs which train people to connect inner and outer work. During that time, Thich Nhat Hanh was a very, very powerful influence. I must have heard him and uh, gone to retreats with him, um, you know, many, many, many times. He came, I was living in Berkeley after 1988, starting in 88, and I must have heard him a number of times. I did a lot of retreats with him, uh, in the, a lot of them in the Bay Area as well, and uh, later... And I'll, I'll show some images in a moment. Later, I went to Plum Village in 1992. I went to visit Plum Village and stayed there for several weeks. You know, so very, a very significant uh, influence. So let me show some further images of the life of Thich Nhat Hanh. So here we have him right before he founds the community of Plum Village. He's also staying active in events. That he comes to New York for very, very large marches uh, for disarmament, 1982. He's, he's on the right there. 
he goes to he establishes the community of Plum Village. This is him at Plum Village in 1990. Again, I got to visit. I'll, I'll show some photographs that I took in a few moments. In 19, this is him in 1990. I visited in 1992. Oh, so these are these are some of my photographs. Um, Plum Village is in uh, south southern France. There are a lot of sunflowers there. The yellow that you see. Those are all sunflowers, believe it or not. Amazing, right? And so you'll see sunflowers a lot in the next photos when with Thich Nhat Hanh. You saw, you saw him earlier with the sunflower. So this is at, at Plum Village. With some of the people who were there. When I was there, there it, was a, um, it was about half the people who were there were, were of Vietnamese ancestry, and about half were... Um, people from North America and, and Europe, especially. So here are the sunflowers. This is uh, Thich Nhat Hanh teaching at Plum Village. There's another image of him. So you can see that it was, he would, he would teach typically every day when I was at Plum Village. So we got to hear him a lot. There's another image. Uh, you know, this was, I think, during a meal. You can see we all would eat together. And here's where he lived at uh, Plum Village. I think, you know, he. This was uh, his hermitage where he lived within the community. Here's much later. Here's teaching to a large number of people. You can see there always are still all these kids. Leading walking meditation. This is the same photo we saw earlier. In 2005, 39 years after he left Vietnam, he was permitted to return to Vietnam and go back to his home temple and where he grew up in Hue. And I think he was permitted to go after that time whenever he wished, but he was not permitted to go back to Vietnam before that time. He gave teaching in many, many places. This is him in India at the famous place called Vulture Peak, giving teachings to many, many people on, on these ethical precepts that I was just mentioning. This is in London, leading meditation with 3,000 people in Trafalgar Square. Leading walking meditation at Plum Village, 2014. That same year, 2014, he suffered a major stroke. He would have been 87. He had a stroke. He did recover, but you can see here in 2018, he's in a wheelchair. And his teaching continued, but lessened. But he, in 2018, he, he moved back to Vietnam. He, had, you know, he was in his 90s, and he wanted, said he wanted to live his last years in Vietnam at his home temple. And that request was granted, and he was able to do that. And then, as you know, just 10 days ago, uh, he died at the age of 95. This is an image of a funeral the funeral procession from just a few days ago. And as Victoria mentioned, there have been a week of ceremonies uh, honoring Thich Nhat Hanh. So I want to bring up um, two more teachings, and then we'll have some time for discussion. At the core of Thich Nhat Hanh's teaching is teaching about being mindful, about being in the present moment, very much you know, in the spirit of what we explored in the meditation, the sense that mindfulness is something that lets us be in the present moment and actually experience living our lives in the present moment. 
and that it can be brought into all the dimensions of daily life. We, again, we sometimes have tendencies in practice to say, you know, my meditation is just when I'm sitting for half an hour and the rest of the day, you know, I'm just living. And Thich Nhat Hanh really wanted to break through that division and invite mindfulness to be there all during the day. And that's really a lot of the rationale for being in a community or in a monastic community. It's to have the barrier between formal meditation and the rest of the day be eliminated. And many of us are drawn to do that as best we can in our own lives. Thich Nhat Hanh was certainly a teacher of that. He said, mindfulness allows you to live deeply every moment that is given you to live. He said, you must be completely awake in the present to enjoy your tea. Only in the awareness of the present can, you, can your hands feel the pleasant warmth of the cup. Only in the present can you savor the aroma, taste the sweetness, appreciate the delicacy. If you are not fully present, you will look around and it will be gone. You will have missed the feel, the aroma, the delicacy, and the beauty of life. It will seem to be speeding past you. The past is finished. Learn from it and let it go. The future is not even here yet. Plan for it, but do not waste your time worrying about it. When you stop ruminating about what already happened, when you stop worrying about what might never happen, then you will be in the present moment. Then you will experience joy in life. And he also really wanted to bring mindfulness to all different experiences. He would often talk, you know, as someone who was counseling, being active and engaging with the social issues, he would often talk about how he would become uh, often angry. You know, in one talk I remember he spoke about how angry he would often become in Vietnam. He, he gave one story, you may remember, where the, um, the U.S. generals said at the end of a, a bombing campaign, we had to destroy this village in order to save it. How many remember or have read about that statement, right? We had to, we had to uh, destroy this village. And Thich Nhat Hanh said that when he heard about that, he became very, very angry. But he, a lot of his teaching is about working with anger, with mindfulness. You know, one story that I heard in person, you know, was he came to the Bay Area right at the time of the... Um, right after the, the uh, first Gulf War had started. I think it would have been uh, um, 1991. And he spoke about how he had, was so angry at, this was then uh, the first President Bush. He said, I could not sleep. I was angry and overwhelmed. The next morning, I suddenly paused and said to my friends, I don't think I will go to North America. The words just sprang out. He was, he was at, at Plum Village. I practiced breathing, walking and sitting, and a few days later I decided to go. I saw that I was one with the American people, with George Bush and with Saddam Hussein. I had been angry with President Bush, but after breathing consciously and looking deeply, I saw myself as President Bush. The president acted the way he did because we acted the way we did. Our society is filled with hatred and violence. Everything is like a bomb ready to explode. And we are all a part of that bomb. We are all co-responsible. So it came from really being, being with the anger. And he, he uses all sorts of different innovative ways to bring mindfulness to the day. You know, I, one, one tool that we used a lot at meetings was called the mindfulness bell. We'd be having a meeting and every 20 minutes, the bell would be rung and we would all stop. In a lot of our meetings, the person ringing it would ring it at moments of tension. Two people would be getting at each other and the person would ring the bell. We'd have 30 seconds of silence. And in this 30 seconds of silence, the conflict would change rapidly. Amazing. You know, I saw that over and over again. Just the power. That's why, 
you know, in my own teaching, I often teach about the incredible power of the uh, technique of taking a pause. Deeply, deeply underrated spiritual practice. Pause. That's really what Thich Nhat Hanh is teaching. And then just the last thing I want to say is really in the spirit of one of his books. It was called Being Peace. He says, if you want peace in the world, you have to be peace. That's really implied somewhat by what I just talked earlier about the story from the uh, first Gulf War period. He says, without being peace, we can do nothing. We cannot do anything for peace. If we are not peaceful, then we cannot contribute to the peace movement. The peace movement is filled with anger and hatred. It cannot fulfill the path we expect from them. A fresh way of being peace, of doing peace, is needed. Peace work means, first of all, being peace. So again, he's suggesting this model, which I find incredibly valuable, of connecting deep inner work with deep outer response. That's what he's teaching. That's what he's teaching in his life and in his words, in his books. And he does that in all sorts of ways. You know, he, he says the role of the peacemaker is often to bring the suffering of one side to the other side and then vice versa. So very skillful ways of working with conflict. He talks about writing love letters to your political opponents. How would you like to do that? <laughs> or your, you know, the people who have different views than you. So I think I want to finish with a, an expression of this. Um, we'll see a video now of Thich Nhat Hanh, and he's expressing views very similar to this notion of being peace. So do we have that queued up now, Carlita? Yes. It's about three minutes long. So I think we need, you need to press something here audio on the screen share. Apologies, let me redo that again. We get the volume a little higher. Sometimes we define ourselves at war with another person, maybe with our family, with our society, with our tradition. But we may learn that when we are at war with someone else, there may be a war within us. And that is why we don't want to war. Of course, uh, there is war within around us, but there is something else. There is also peace and joy. And we should uh, learn to go home in order to touch the joy and the peace within us and around us. And this is very important because all of us need to be nourished, to be stable, in order to be able to go further to do something for the people around us. I know many of you are very dedicated to the cause of peace, of social justice. But many of us feel at times lost, angry, despair. They are overwhelmed by the tremendous amount of suffering that is there around us and even inside us. We need a source of energy, a source of peace 
joy in order to counterbalance. Because we know that if you do not have uh, some amount of peace, of joy, of happiness, we cannot do anything. We cannot continue. The practice of arriving helps us to touch the peace and the joy within in order to get nourished. And that practice will help us to generate the energy of mindfulness that will help us to touch the war within and around us. Because uh, touching the war without uh, strength, without uh, the energy of mindfulness, may be dangerous. You'll be overwhelmed by it. You'll be shattered by it. And therefore, before we learn to touch the war within and around us, we should cultivate the energy of mindfulness. And that kind of cultivation could be realized when we learn to go home and touch the peace and the joy in us. Thank you. Thank you, Carlita. My pleasure. I'll just um, let the words of Thich Nhat Hanh be with us, but I'll say that ultimately this, uh, we honor uh, Thich Nhat Hanh by our own practice. And let, me, let me invite us just to sit in silence for a few moments, let the talk, the images, the words from Thich Nhat Hanh be with us. See where they go. See if you have uh, something you want to share or a question to ask, request for clarification of something. So thank you, thank you so much for um, helping me to honor Thich Nhat Hanh. And it was a, it was a pleasure to bring my own uh, stories and reflections, and in some cases photographs together, to um, just reflect on what a profound influence Thich Nhat Hanh has been uh, on our world and certainly in my own life. So let's... Um, if you want to join in the discussion, uh, you can use the raised hand function. And it looks like we have, have Laura, please. Hi, Donald. Thank you so much for this um, commemoration of Thich Nhat Hanh and his life and the slides that you put together were wonderful. And I really enjoyed the meditation and the <clears throat> notes that you were the words that you were giving during the meditation. And I wondered if there was a book that that might have come from or that you could suggest to, so that I could, you know, get that and use some of those phrases again. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a great question. Um, I got those just from um, one source that I went to was actually the website for Plum Village. So that would have, and there, there are places where there are sample meditations and some of the phrases like that I use can be found. I think it's found in a number of different books. I don't know if I can focus on just one. Um, and there, there, there might be one somewhere he really um, gives those in a collected form, but I, I got these especially from 
the Plum Village website. Okay, great. Thank you. And then I also just, as a note, I thought it was interesting. On the last slide, I think the date was 2023. Oh. So just in case you're going to show that slideshow again. Thank you. you. Uh, I didn't. Thank you for being my editor. Welcome. Thank, Thank you for your teaching. I'll, I'll check on that. I think it was uh, uh, not the correct year. I'm pretty sure not. Yeah, even though past, present, and future are closely related, but <laughs> and time is relative. But that's why I thought it was really interesting. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Great. Do we have JT? Hi. Um, thank you, and apologies if you hear motorcycles outside. I'm in Brooklyn. It's hard to get quiet space. Okay. <laughs> um, thank you so much for today. Uh, this is my first Spirit Rock to anything, and uh, um, Pieces Every Step was uh, my first introduction to mindfulness yeah. exactly a year yeah. ago. Wow. Um, so uh, one really tactical beginner question. Yeah. Um, I remember reading in the book a lot of what you were giving us for the guided meditation, kind of the breathing in and breathing out. And then, but sometimes in practice, like my breaths are so shallow. <laughs> I get about halfway through that sentence and I'm already breathing out. Are those, are those meant to be done with more like w- with deeper breaths or with more natural breaths? Yeah. Um, the, the you, thank, thank you, JT, for the question. Usually or virtually always when we teach insight meditation, we invite the breath to be natural. You know, there are meditation traditions where the breath is more controlled and where there's an attempt to have a, uh, a deeper breath. I don't recall ever hearing that from Thich Nhat Hanh. It, it may be there, and some, some people may know better than me. And so I would say um, just let your, uh, let your breath be natural, and you don't have to uh, necessarily synchronize it to the length of the sentences. Just have have the meaning be there for you, would be my thank counsel. You. Yeah, thank you. Great. And greetings to Brooklyn. I often say that's uh, that's where my father was born. Great. Anyone else want to share something? Ask a question. Really, could be of any any kind. Uh, could be could be just a practice related question if you have one. Doesn't have to be directly related to Thich Nhat Hanh. I can help make the connections. Yeah, is that uh, Peggy, please? Um, hi, thank you so much. This was such a wonderful presentation. Um, I, when I think about engaged Buddhism, um, or I try to live more in that way, I just I feel very overwhelmed. Like I, yeah. like, like. If I need to act when I see all these things, I just, I don't know which way to go because there's so many, so many things that left that can be done. I find myself being very, I get very busy and not in a good way, like, like busyness of the mind. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I just wanted to comment and see if you had any feedback or impressions. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Peggy. And how many can relate to what Peggy was saying? Okay, look around. It's, that's really, really, uh, really crucial to see this is a kind of a common concern. Um, I have a lot I could say. I, I, I did a book which could be a partial response, which is a few hundred pages of response called The Engaged Spiritual Life. Uh, but if I, had to, if I had to go to what I think would be most important in response to your question, we... Um, we want to find a way to both hear what most calls us in terms of action. And we don't have to do everything. And so maybe the first thing is, is to see what calls you and commit to a certain amount of time or energy, maybe per week. You know, let's say you want to work on climate issues, right? And you, um, you say, okay, how, how much time do I have? What's a good amount? And then you 
may do your research to say, okay, um, you know, I want to help this organization or that organization or this issue in some way. So you, you keep it uh, limited so it's not too much. You'll find that actually acting will help a lot with the overwhelm. And maybe you're already doing this, but uh, when, one, when one acts, the sense of overwhelm often is much less because you know you're doing something. And you do it within your limits, not too much, not such that it goes to burnout. A second really foundational support is going to be being part of a community. So you're not on your own, right? So that's really, really crucial and will help really significantly with overwhelm. Um, so being part of a community, when I was active with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, as I mentioned, we did a program which was founded by Diana Winston, also a spirit rock teacher who lives in Los Angeles, called the BASE program. We ran that for about 10 years, which had small groups of people. And it was actually, we ran a number and we, you know, Diana and I wrote a manual and then that was uh, distributed all over the country and all over the world really. And people did, most of our groups were eight to 15 people and everyone was a practitioner, and we would typically meet once a week. Doesn't have to be that often, but we would meet once a week. But having some kind of community is really, really significant because you can share notes, share experiences. And then probably thirdly, just having, you know, not doing too much and having ways to keep doing the inner work. You know, I found that uh, doing retreats together, our, our groups, our small groups, we would typically get together once a month for a whole day together. And we would do practice. Um, another really crucial practice that can help with overwhelm is the work of Joanna Macy, which uh, is called the um, coming, what is it called? coming back to life. Or it, it's... Um, her work is particularly useful, useful for a lot of things, but one of the things is it helps create public practices or group practices where you air what's painful and difficult. And mm -hmm. it stops being something private and becomes something shared by the community. And that becomes really, really crucial for avoiding isolation, burnout, overwhelm, and so forth. So those are a few initial steps. Thank you so much. That's very helpful. No, thank you. Great. Maybe time for one or two more, if they're brief. Maybe we'll do one more. Anyone just want to share or ask a question? Yeah, please, uh, Carolina. Okay, hello. Um, sorry, my English is not too good. It's okay. Um, but I, I, I was thinking about the, the person, Diana, that you uh, talk about a uh, practice. Yeah. The, I, I, don't, I don't hear very well the, the, the name of, of your practice in group. Oh, um, the practice that uh, Diana Winston, who is connected with UCLA, and the Mindful Awareness Research Center, she teaches a lot. Um, she founded the program, it was called the BASE program, B-A-S-E. Um, -E. It's not going now, it was through the Buddhist Peace Fellowship and it'd be great to bring it back, uh, but it, it was called B-A-S-E, which stands for Buddhist Alliance for Social Engagement. And it was named to resonate with the base community movement coming out of uh, liberation theology in uh, particularly Latin America, to some extent in Asia, with more from a Catholic setting. And uh, we were very inspired by reading about those movements. And, you know, I met people who were connected with them, you know. So, um, yeah, I wish the program was going on now, but we'd have to, we have to get it going again because the, the times need it, yeah. But the, you know, our manual, I think it should be public. It was called the base manual that we wrote. It was about a 40-page manual 
for really starting groups like this. It, it shared a lot of the experience that we had, what, you know, what worked, what was helpful, what we did. And, and I think it should be, um, you know, it should be online. If you, if you would like a copy and you can't find it, uh, uh, you could go to my uh, uh, website and there's an email function. You could send me an email and ask me to send it to you. Okay. Thanks, Carolina. Am I pronouncing your name right? Is it Carolina or Carolina? Sorry, let me bring her back. Okay. Yeah, was I pronouncing your name right? Carolina. Carolina. Yeah, I, thought, I thought it might be that. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for your answer. Yeah, you're very welcome. So let me close now with um, some words from Thich Nhat Hanh. This is about him contemplating his own death. And this was from 2016. This body of mine will disintegrate, but my actions will continue me. If you think I am only this body, then you have not truly seen me. When you look at my friends, you will see my continuation. When you see someone walking with mindfulness and compassion, you will know that person is my continuation. I don't see why we have to say I will die because I can already see myself in you, in other people and in future generations. Even when the cloud is not there, it continues as snow or rain. It is impossible for the cloud to die. It can, can become rain or ice, but it cannot become nothing. The cloud does not need to have a soul in order to continue. There's no beginning and no end. I will never die. There will be a dissolution of this body, but that does not mean my death. I will continue always. So let's we can let go of the image and come back to our closing. Again, I'll close as I usually do in two ways. First, to see what was helpful or significant from our time, any intention that you have coming out of our time together. And then secondly, we'll close with the dedication of merit, very traditional practice. Knowing our interconnection, we invite the benefits of our time together to be offered through our own lives in known and in mysterious ways to all beings, knowing that we are connected in ways that we can understand and in ways that are mysterious. May our time together be of benefit to all beings, knowing that we are part of all beings. So thank you so much for your kind attention. Great to see everyone. And if you want to, you can unmute and say hello, goodbye, whatever you'd like for a few moments. Thank you, Carlita. Yay, Carlita. Thank you, Carlita. Oh, goodness. Good to see you all. Hope to see you next week. Blessing. Thank, thank you, you, Donald. That was wonderful. Really was. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. Till next time. Okay. Hope to see you next thank time you. with Yasir. Wonderful <laughs> presentation. I lo loved hearing about you and Thich Nhat Hanh. It was so amazing. Thank yeah. you for sharing. You're, you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs>
Thank you. Thank you, Sangha. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye bye. Okay. Thanks. Thanks again, Carlita. Oh, my pleasure. Apologies for the hiccups. I thought of the word we were discussing, mysticism and fundamentalism. Yeah, yeah. That was it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Donald. Okay, Beautiful. Thank, thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks, Donald. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.